Good evening, everyone. Good evening, good evening, good evening. It's Danny High Fong here. How do I sound? Just let me know in the chat. Hello, hello, hello. I'll probably be with you all for about an hour. This is an impromptu stream. I don't know how many people will end up hopping on, but I appreciate it nonetheless. It's the last day of May. So welcome, everyone. Good evening. Well, and good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. So, yeah, I wanted to just hop on because, of course, Twitter was just awry with nonsense about Karl Marx being, quote unquote, racist. And so I wanted to react to that. I'm also going to react a bit to Antony Blinken, head of the secretary of the uh, head of the Department of State, the secretary of state of the United States. He recently outlined the United States' actual policy toward China comprehensively at George Washington University. Uh, that was about, uh, what was that, five days ago or so. So I wanted to just go over that a bit and talk about my reactions to it. But while you're here, of course, like the stream, help share it, subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell, and all of that good stuff. And of course... This is still uh, the last day of May. Uh, I'm on a goal for 500 Patreon subscribers. Hoping to get that by the end of the year. I think that will put me to my $3,000 per month mark. So looking for about three more subscribers to my Patreon this month. So if you can help out in any amount, please do subscribe at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Or you can help out in any way you can in the links in the description, places like Substack as well as the one-time options. So anything is appreciated, but hello, hello, hello. Good evening, good evening. Please keep liking the stream and sharing it. Uh, what's up, Terry? Hello, Holly. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you to Mario Vargas, who uh, has been active in the chat already. Hello. Hi, Elena. I don't know if I agree with that I would like to see some kind of citation there about the final solution that you speak of. But nonetheless, I wanted to react to this idea that Marx was racist. And I think this show this is a fundamental flaw in the analysis of racism that we have in the United States. There is, I think, a lot of emphasis on individual beliefs, individual behaviors, and not a lot on the context and not a lot on the theory. So I want to get into that because I think what is most important is Karl Marx's significance, the significance of his work to uh, the world revolution, really, but especially the struggle against colonialism, against imperialism, and by extension, the struggle against white supremacy. So hello, David. Good to see you. So while you all are here, please do like the stream, subscribe to the channel. Of course, hit that notifications bell. Keep sharing this around. Uh, keep boosting it. I'll probably be on with you all for about one hour today. This is about a, this is an impromptu stream. I just wanted to react. I wanted to get in the conversation with all of you. And uh, on the last day of this month, I'm still plugging, of course, for three more subscribers to my Patreon. So at any amount you can, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Help me meet my monthly goal. Hello, Death Leopards. Good to see you. So yeah, 
This is something, this is an issue, Karl Marx and racism, right? That I hear a lot. You hear it from cert, from basically all ends of the political spectrum. You hear it from some folks who claim to be pan-Africanists. You hear it from some folks who claim, you know, liberals. You hear it from the most reactionary elements, people who I would consider having issues with race and racism themselves. You hear it from people like Matt Stoller, right, who would say something to the effect of China is a Nazi government, for example. So uh, there is this overall anti-communist framing of Marxism that I think uh, must be factored in here, right? We wouldn't be talking about Karl Marx being racist if there wasn't a massive campaign against communism that has existed since the ideology of Marxism really was manifested and really uh, was launched uh, in the 19th century. But uh, even uh, just in the last century or so, since especially since uh, the Soviet Union and the Russian Revolution, uh, we've seen just an incredible attack on communism, on the ideology and the principles of socialism and revolutionary uh, movements. And so that has to be factored in here because I don't think we would even be having this conversation were it not for anti-communism. So with that said, there is nothing more anti-communist than trying to weave in racism to undermine the work of Karl Marx. For one, if you read Capital Volume 1, and I just want to say this outright, it was Karl Marx who said, I'm just paraphrasing here, when he was talking about the working day, he was talking about the tendency of capitalism to try to increase the working day, to increase the rate of uh, exploitation, right? The extraction of surplus value from workers. He commented on North America, in particular the United States, where he said that laborers and the white skin can never be emancipated unless should uh, labor and the black skin be branded. And what did he mean by branded? He meant slavery. He meant chattel slavery, the super exploitation of black workers, of African workers here in the United States for super profits. And he directly related that to the undermining and then eventually to the victory of the eight hour day. He made the link that if it wasn't for the fight against slavery, if it wasn't for opposition to slavery, then it is highly likely that the eight hour day and that uh, and that movement would, would be successful or would have started to be successful uh, as he wrote uh, Capital Volume 1 uh, about capitalist production. So uh, that's just to begin, right? That's just to say that Karl Marx was well aware of slavery. He uh, wrote uh, uh, letters and uh, 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 works on the Civil War. He was fervently opposed to slavery. And there's one other thing I want to mention about this question of racism, because a lot of the question about this is that he was anti-black. And I haven't seen one. There are even some people who said he said the N-word in his works. I haven't seen one citation of that. I've never seen that. I've read quite a bit of Marx. I'm not going to say I've read everything, but I've read you know, uh, a lot of his works. And I've never seen this use of the end where they say it is letters, but I haven't seen any citations of this. So if anyone has receipts, I'd really like to see them, uh, but I don't think I will be seeing them. But nonetheless, there's also another point here that's often used against Karl Marx, but even Frederick Engels and just uh, the earliest thinkers of Marxism. 
is that there's often this idea that they were racist even toward indigenous people, right? If you may remember, Frederick Engels wrote the very prominent study of private property, the family and the state, where he goes over kind of the basis of gender in patriarchy and private property and how it all arises from the development of private property relations all going all the way back to slavery that formed out of what was called primitive communism. And now this is where the controversy lies, but I'll get to that in a second. But really what I'm talking about is that uh, there is, you know, there's a whole body of work here that is criticized by uh, Marx and Engels as kind of being Eurocentric and uh, sort of a product of their time and very limited in that way. And I want to push back against that a little bit because for one, uh, Karl Marx himself was Jewish and he was very, I mean, he was poor, very poor. He was exiled. For, he was exiled from many different places, from France, from Britain. He was someone who was constantly on the run because of his politics and his participation in political movements, workers' movements. And so it's very hard for me, especially given at that time that anti-Semitism in the Western world was at an all-time high, to believe that somehow Karl Marx was racist, right? I, I think it's a... I think that there's just like a automatic look kind of, I don't know, people look at Karl Marx and they say, oh, that that dude was white. But in reality, in his time, uh, it's arguable whether we could call him white, given his uh, uh, Jewish uh, background and where he lived, right, for most of his uh, life in, in the Western world. So that's just one thing. But then let's get to the question of primitive communism, because this is oftentimes where people say, well, look, Karl Marx used the word primitive. So did Engels. And, and, you know, they used the word primitive. So that means they're racist. But we have to look at the of what Karl Marx and Engels were talking about when they said primitive communism. They weren't saying that ancient societies, indigenous societies, societies that yet that were yet to have developed property relations were primitive in the sense that they were uh, uncivilized, quote unquote. What they were saying was that the the relations of production were not developed to the point where private property would have arisen, making it primitive in the sense that it is uh, economically, developmentally, uh, not at the level of the productive forces that we would see when slavery, feudalism, and then capitalism would arise on the world stage. It wasn't about the individuals or the people. Actually, Engels in Private Property, Family, and the State, if you read it, actually talks about how primitive communism, quote-unquote, is really kind of the seedlings of what communism would look like in the future, except in a different stage of development. So this isn't a judgment call, Right. And of course, maybe the word primitive is used in bad taste because it is based in old English language, which is rooted in white supremacy. But I think it's way too simplistic to say that that's an inherent signal of racism on the part of the individuals. If you read the works, what they're referring to is the mode of development and the developmental stage of these societies. It isn't an absolute condemnation of them as somehow not quote-unquote civilized and worthy of extermination and colonialism 
like what happened when the settlers began to come to North America and other parts of the world in order to uh, conquer and establish these private property relations, right? So that's just one thing I wanted to get out the way because I think I haven't seen any of this oh, anti-black stuff coming out of, you know, if there are any limitations to Marxism, Marx and Engels, it's that uh, they spoke more of colonialism and the condition and plight of slaves, et cetera, more in the ec economic sense, the developmental sense, an understanding of economic theory and economic development, especially capitalism. That's really where they were focused. And then, of course, if you look at the Communist Manifesto and other works, um, you see the rudiments of developing a theory of what socialism would look like. But this question of white supremacy, right, was not really their specialty. And you could call that a limitation or something like that. But they did comment on race. They did comment on slavery. And they talked about how it really did bring the class struggle backwards. And what's most important to me about this conversation is how it is so focused on two individuals who essentially gave the world revolutionary movement a framework from which to defeat capitalism, imperialism, and white supremacy, right? It, it is a framework for that because if we understand white supremacy as an outgrowth of capitalism, as a necessary uh, institution and a necessary system for the upkeep, reproduction, and maintenance of capitalism, then you understand that the revolutionary movements that have existed worldwide in the fight for socialism have mainly been in the non-white world and the underdeveloped world and the world that's been colonized and the world that uh, was facing down the scourge of European imperialism and U.S. imperialism. If you understand that, then you see that actually Marxism and Karl Marx's work hold a special significance in this struggle against racism itself. So, you know, I posted earlier today on Twitter just the revolutionaries that have adopted, and I, and I missed a lot, and some people helped fill in the blanks, right? Thomas Sankara, George Jackson, I put Asada Shakur, Claudia Jones, uh, 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 you know, we can go down the line, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Celia Sanchez in Cuba, right? Uh, there have been so many revolutionaries who have upheld Marxism as the ideology uh, and the principles and the framework from which to build socialism, to build a revolutionary movement. And so I think it's just so reductive to call Marxism itself and Karl Marx, right? To go hearken in on this individualistic kind of notion that Karl Marx was racist without any receipts. No, like, where's, you know, where are these quotes, right? Nobody's pulling any good quotes. But even if they were to pull good quotes, it still wouldn't negate the, what, tens of thousands of pages, right? Dozens of works of articles and books that these figures wrote, which were then picked up by people like Vladimir Lenin, like Fidel Castro, like Kwame Nkrumah, like uh, Mao Zedong, right? It, it doesn't negate the fact that these individuals and their movements picked up these works and said, this is the path for us in our colonial situation for our, to address our colonial situation, to address 
imperialism, to address super exploitation, and to address white supremacy. Because if you read the works, for example, of Huey P. Newton, George Jackson, right, they talk about how, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with this, the only way you can really shift ide a society ideologically en masse, right, the only way that can happen is through the seizure of power, through the seizure of the means of production, through the seizure of the state, and then, of course, its reconstitution. And then, once you have that kind of power, you can implement the programs, the policies, the institutions that you need to re-educate the sections of society that are willing to be re-educated around something like racism, right? Around something that's so critical. That's the ideological part of the struggle. That's when racism will wither away ideologically. But the only way you get rid of it in the sense of power is, I think, following the path of Marxism, right? Thinking about the ways in which we can wage a struggle for the liberation of the economic forces, of the forces of production from the ruling class, which wields them. And that ruling class, which wields them for exploitation of working people, of oppressed people, of oppressed nations, they do so on the basis of a superstructure, a cultural superstructure, ideological superstructure, a media, right? Uh, all of the organs from which we uh, build up our lives outside of the economic realm, that we build up our existence outside the economic realm, they wield those and embed racism within them in order to maintain their supremacy their power, their control over the means of production. And that is where I think we need to be looking in this struggle for racism, right? It's often not talked about in this way. How often do you hear racism be talked about as, well, Donald Trump said something bad. Well, there are racist individuals out there. Well, there's a certain section of voters or uh, whatever, right? Identity, quote unquote, politics, all of this. It doesn't get to the fact that if you're going to transform institutions like mass incarceration, racist policing, if you're going to transform institutions like the military industrial complex, these institutions which are inherently racist, they all go by a doctrine of dehumanization. They all terrorize black people, oppressed peoples around the world, most of whom happen to be non-white, a vast majority, 99% of them happen to be non-white. All these institutions follow this doctrine of dehumanization of whites of white you call white supremacy, you call it racism, right? You could call it Eurocentrism. All of it is relevant. And I think the only way we have a real discussion about racism in the context of Marxism is by acknowledging and affirming that the Marxist path, that the communist path is the correct one, right? Doesn't mean that that path is set in stone doesn't mean we know exactly how we're going to get there, but it means that the outline of, well, you really do need power over the relations of production. You really do need to have control over them as a class, as a, a mass movement led by a vanguard class, a vanguard force that represents the class interests of the broad strata of people who are exploited by capitalism, unless you have that, you can't really have 
uh, race, something like racism, which is so embedded in the fabric of this society, of this society, and of course the European world and all and its junior partners and oligarchs, etc. You can't have that without first having power, right? And I think that's where revolutionaries around the world in Africa and Asia and Latin America and in the US, right? That, that they forwarded a vision of the struggle against white supremacy as being about power. So we always have to talk about power. You can't talk. I think it's almost pointless, right? If you're not talking about power and you're talking about Karl Marx being racist, I think you're having the wrong conversation and you're having it without the receipts you need to really prove such an accusation and this is this is how lenin described in state and revolution right there are many ways that revolutionaries are kind of sanitized and rendered uh, uh i don't know uh, rendered i guess neutral or made into kind of a caricature weakened right this is like the first paragraph of the same revolution where lenin talks about how Marxism has been bastardized, it's been sanitized, and there are many ways to do that, right? Uh, take away the seriousness of the person, lambast their identity, vilify them. There are so many ways to do it. And I think one of the most insidious ways in this modern era, where there has been a lot of movement and progress on the conversation of racism because of struggle, and you could call that struggle class struggle, you can call that struggle uh, of the a struggle for self-determination of black people, of indigenous people, of uh, oppressed peoples of the world. Because of the success of that struggle, especially in the 20th century, you had these reforms made, right? You had the establishment make certain reforms, especially in the area, not necessarily in the material sense, but you had, in some ways, yes, in the material sense, but more significantly, I think, in the ideological sense, you've had corporations, you've had the state, you've had the power brokers of imperialism attempt to adopt and co-opt and use the language of anti-racism as a weapon to reproduce the uh, liberal or should we say neoliberal uh, capitalist and imperialist order. That's why you have nearly the entire European and U.S. liberal bourgeoisie, so to speak, come together around an understanding of anti-racism, which emphasizes individualism, which emphasizes things like call-out culture, which emphasizes things like quote-unquote diversity and inclusion, which emphasizes getting people like Barack Obama, uh, Kamala Harris in, in high places, where you have this emphasis on sort of the less uh, substantial policy-wise and, and materially uh, these aspects of racism without the uh, any without really any substantive uh, uh, approach to the most uh, the most egregious forms of racism those forms which really do speak to the political economy of a society right mass incarceration is one of those endless wars one of those these are really the monumental and foundational aspects of white supremacy which build upon and support and fortify political economy right you don't have late stage capitalism neoliberal capitalism where so much labor has been rendered disposable without mass incarceration and you don't have 40 percent of those 
who are caught up in the system of mass incarceration be black American without white supremacy. And that builds up the class divide in the US, for example, as something that is very difficult to penetrate, very difficult to work around, and oftentimes takes uh, real work on the ground as we're building up struggles and movements to uh, to really address in, in real time, right? It's something you can't avoid, right? You don't have a struggle against mass incarceration without addressing that disparity because what it means is that you will need uh, a real mass basis in black communities in order for any movement to be successful and you'll need real leadership in black communities and in the black movement in order for any class struggle to be successful around the question of mass incarceration and really around anything because we can go down the line in terms of life expectancy wages wealth right all of it speaks to a an embedded racist inequality which feeds the capitalist system and allows it to maintain itself and reproduce itself even in difficult conditions and i think i just want to close on this topic because or or close you know begin to conclude on this particular subject because i think what's oftentimes negated is that it's these inequalities, it's these systemic, we could call them if we're going to use that language, but it's these outgrowths, right? Systemic outgrowths of white supremacy and racism, which actually are the biggest impediment to real class struggle. A lot of people have been asking, why is it that it's so hard to address mass shootings in the United States? Why is it so hard to get universal health care? Why is it so hard to address austerity? Why is it so hard to have a workers movement in the United States that is unified. And while racism cannot be said to be the only thing, it certainly is one of the more uh, uh, important factors that leads to big issues within the overall and broad class struggle. And anyone who says otherwise is not telling the truth, right? Because even when you do have a mass basis, a, a mass support and policies, you will have the racist infrastructure of this country uh, use the tools at its disposal to whip up a kind of hysteria in order to uh, divide people, in order to get people to think that they're actually not on the same side. And also it can point to, and these are just the facts, it can point to that there are real disparities within the working class. It's not like all workers live under the same conditions even though, and this is uh, my opinion, but I think it is also fact, even though the overall trend is everyone is in the race to the bottom, it's just that so there are sections of the working class that happen to already be on the bottom, have been on the bottom, and their bottom is getting worse, while more and more are falling uh, to a similar state and condition. And this this was a problem in the working class movement, even in during the Great Depression, too, that people I, I hate the myth and the lie that during the Great Depression, there was just some kind of universal class unity in the United States. There definitely was a lot of hard work done by the Communist Party of the USA. We had Frank Chapman on our program, and he talked about this uh, from his books, Marxism, from his book, Marxism and Black Liberation, uh, uh, which you should definitely check out our interview with him. And 
in that interview, he talked about this unity that was attempted to be forged, but it it was arrested, right? By, by so many factors, of course, right? Repression. But one of the big things that hindered it was the uh, endurance of Jim Crow and the ways in which the state developed a model of repression that made it so the work of class unity right the work of class unity was very difficult and it didn't always succeed so we have to acknowledge that and we have to move forward based based on these facts so it you know i think it's ridiculous to talk about what is karl marx racist i think it's ridiculous to think of marxism in any frame of it being white supremacist when those who have championed it those who have won victorious struggles in the in Africa, right? In places like Mozambique. Those who who have won victorious struggles in Latin America, Venezuela, Cuba. Those who have won victorious struggles in Asia, China, Vietnam. We can put Russia and Eurasia, I guess, but I consider an Asian country, at least in how it's treated. So Russia for many years those countries historically considered quote unquote non-white historically have been victims of white supremacy and don't even try to argue with me here and even in the modern sense both russia and china are targeted as quote unquote non-white countries as countries outside of the orbit of the eurocentric imperialist orbit and so that's why you have russia gate anti-russian hysteria that's why you have a new cold war on china and anti-china hysteria Racism is a huge part of that. And those countries are still not seen, no matter how much they economically grow, no matter how much they've attempted, especially Russia, it's no matter how much Russia has attempted to integrate with Europe, even culturally, economically, politically, it doesn't matter. They're still just Slavs. They're still just, uh, uh, you know, despots out in the east so that is the power of white supremacy that's the power of white supremacy fueling u.s foreign policy and western foreign policy western imperialism in any event you know i just want to end that part of the conversation because i do want to get to uh, questions uh, or any comments that you all have any super chats uh you know please do continue to like this stream share it subscribe to this channel make sure you hit that notifications bell uh continue to to pump out this stream so people know uh that it is happening this channel is getting absolutely throttled right it is really difficult to increase the subscriber count it's been really difficult to get viewers on streams um, no matter how much promotion, right? No matter who I get, right? Even what I've noticed is that other channels, even with fewer subscribers, even if I have someone on of comparable, whatever, algorithm boosting quality, it still doesn't meet the level of, of views or anything like that. So I know that this channel, I mean, every video I pu publish, I need to request a review for monetization, so I'm being demonetized every single video at this point. So with that said, you know, the best way to support me is on Patreon, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Any amount that you can, I'm looking for 
three more subscribers this month. And then overall, I'm looking for 500 and about 462 or so, but probably will be a little less than that uh, after tomorrow. So uh, please do subscribe at any amount. If you can, that's how you support this channel. That's how you support this work. So enough of that. Enough of uh, the ridiculous conversation of Karl Marx being racist. I think we can say, and, and there could be books written about this topic, about the utility of Marxism for the third world, for the anti-colonial movement, for uh, the movement against imperialism. We could write books on it, right? We could write a whole books about just one example, right? Whether it's China, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Ghana, whether it's uh, Eritrea, whether it's uh, Zimbabwe, right? We could write whole books on each one of those cases and uh, we should be investigating and studying those cases further. I know that's a goal of mine uh, coming up. So, I mean, we, we got a lot of work to do, right? And that's, that's part of the work that I'm trying to do here. So with that said, though, five days ago, I wanted to talk about the Anthony Blinken speech. And I'll pull it up, but I'm not going to read through a lot of it. I'm just going to give my reactions. Uh, there is one statement in particular that kind of encapsulates, I think, exactly where the United States stands with China, exactly how dangerous it is. Later tonight on CGTN, I'm going to be on headlines buster, Headline Busters with uh, Lucien of The Point. I don't know exactly uh, what we'll be talking about, uh, but I know it'll be about media coverage and China, and I'm sure that this uh, will come up this overall strategy that the United States is pursuing, and Anthony Blinken has expressed it right in clear terms. Because what we've had with the Biden administration is a lot of different terms being used, right? Uh, but in February 2022, the United States did publish Biden administration did publish the um, did publish the Indo-Pacific strategy. But in that strategy, while there were mentions of the People's Republic of China, uh, there were only a few and they were, there were a lot of attempts to kind of distance from any sort of specific policy toward China beyond uh, so-called security interests in the Indo-Pacific. So you could read the Indo-Pacific strategy as a very narrow document, which supposedly only covers uh, the broad sort of approach to a region particularly to counter China, but it doesn't really outline anything specific. While here in this speech, the Biden administration through Anthony Blinken at uh, George, uh, I believe it was uh, George Washington University. Yep. Uh, he outlined exactly what the United States wants to accomplish when it comes to China, exactly how the United States is going to approach China. And so I want to just uh, full, fast forward down here because I think this is very important in terms of how the United States views China and why the United States is taking what I think is a deceptively hostile posture, an incredibly hostile posture, which to me is equal to, or if not even more belligerent than Donald Trump's posture. And that may be hard to believe rhetorically, but it is absolutely true. And this speech actually shows it and it shows it in this quote alone, I'm just going to zoom it in a bit for you all. He says, even as, this is Anthony Blinken, even as Putin's war continues, so 
the Ukraine crisis, the Russia special military operation, we will remain focused on the most serious long-term challenge to the international order, and that's posed by the People's Republic of China. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained much of the world's progress over the last 75 years. So you have basically Antony Blinken stating here that China is the only country with the intent and the means to reshape the international order. And now this is absolutely just an example of how horrific the Cold War mindset, the mindset of American exceptionalism in particular is. Because if you think about this, if you really take it at face value, what Anthony Blinken is saying is that the United States is the international order. Because if we were to look at this statement outside of that context, outside of that mindset, that framework, that American exceptionalist mindset, then we would say, wow, actually, the, China is definitely not the only country. If it is a country at all that has intent to reshape the international order, that's actually the United States. Somebody, uh, Anna, just said projection, and that's exactly correct. And, and to me, it's even worse than projection because the idea that the United States has not, right, it's like, it's both projection and erasure because it's this idea that the United States not only is ascribing qualities of itself onto China, but it's also erasing the fact that it has this long criminal imperialist history that essentially uh, characterizes it as exactly what it's saying about China, if not um, much worse, right? I mean, we're talking about the United States killing millions of people since World War II, tens of millions of people, uh, more than a few million in Afghanistan and Iraq alone in the last few decades. We're talking about a country that whose uh, a system, an imperialist system in the United States, which has actually reshaped the international order, whether we look at the war on terror, whether we're, we look at the Cold War, right? These were these were entire international reshaping historical events which were driven by the United States and led to massive losses of life, massive campaigns of war and destabilization all over the world. And still you have Anthony Blinken saying, well, China is actually the one that's reshaping the international order and we've got to be careful. I, I mean... To me, that's just an incredible projection and erasure of the true history of the United States and the true present. Because at present, the United States is fueling one of the most dangerous conflicts in human history, I mean, in our generation, especially in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? Russia's spill of special military operation might have, in the immediate sense, kicked things off. But we, are, we already knew, we might not have factored it in, all of us, uh, at the right time, 
But a lot of us already knew that the United States had created a civil war situation. Ukraine had created um, an extremely hot and intense political situation that threatened Russia's national security interests, threatened its sovereignty, and now is pumping weapons, money. It's fueling a a proxy war, but really this is, if, if Russia is engaged on the battlefield, Ukraine's engaged on the battlefield, I mean, this is more than it's a proxy war, right? This is, this is a hot war that's happening right now. And the United States is fueling it and trying to fuel it as a, as sort of a, a puppet master that has a proxy in Ukraine uh, doing its dirty work, right? I mean, that is incredibly dangerous. And that, that's just one example. That's just one example. When I'm talking about Syria, the occupation of Syria, starving babies in Afghanistan, uh, attempting to overthrow Venezuela's government, attempting to overthrow Bolivia's government. How many governments have been overthrown or attempted uh, to be overthrown uh, in the last uh, 20 years alone, right? So uh, Paraguay, I mean, Honduras, we can go on and on and on and on. Eritrea, Ethiopia now caught in the crosshairs, Libya right? It was caught in the crosshairs and destroyed. Zimbabwe, starvation sanctions. I mean, this is America. I mean, this is imperialism. This is uh, uh, incredible projection, but it speaks to the overall hostile policy of the United States toward China, that it's Beijing. It's Beijing that's moving us away from universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress over the last 75 years. So much of the world's progress. Now, just think about this a bit, this, this idea of progress. How the United States is defining progress is basically its hegemony. Because over the course of the United States' hegemony, what we've seen in most of the world is skyrocketing poverty, intense instability, neocolonial domination, demilitarization of damn near every part of the world, including the United States. That's what progress is, right? More poverty, more militarization, more war, more austerity, more suffering, more bombs, more sanctions. We can go on and on and on. Now, if we look at China's role in the world over this same period, we could say quite the opposite. In the 1950s and 60s, China was already getting building in the African continent, helping out Tanzania, right? Building the Tanzam Railway. China was already building relations with third world revolutionary movements, anti-colonial movements. China was already building kind of a cachet of solidarity with other oppressed countries. And that's not even to mention the fact that China, right after 1949, began a long arduous arduous and difficult journey toward eliminating and eradicating extreme poverty, figuring out how to turn a majority peasant, agrarian, underdeveloped, non-industrial, completely non-industrial society into what it is today, which is essentially the metropolis of economic development, the economic miracle, the crown jewel of, of the current world economy and also of socialist development. Because now you have all the socialist countries wanting to do some form of what China is doing 
Cuba, Venezuela, you know, DPRK even, despite not having the opportunities. You do have, right, sort of, a, you have Laos and Vietnam. Their models are largely influenced and inspired, not totally, but largely influenced and inspired by reforming, reform and opening up. I mean, that's the trend. And that's the difference in progress that we're talking about, the difference in this word progress. But nonetheless, I want to just focus on how, right, throughout this, Blinken says he doesn't want a new Cold War. They're determined to avoid both. We don't want to block China as a major power. We don't want to stop it. We don't want them to not grow their economy in the interest of their people. But... <laughs> We will defend and strengthen the international law, agreements, principles, and institutions that maintain peace and security, protect the rights of individuals and sovereign nations, and make it possible for all countries, including the United States and China, to coexist and cooperate. That seems to run a, an exact contradiction to what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine right now and how the U.S. is relating to Russia. And that's just one example, right? Uh, this is not even to talk about how the U.S. is creating an Asian NATO, AUKUS, U.S., Australia, U.K., the Quad, India, Japan, the United States, Australia. I mean, these are formations that are not about maintaining peace or protecting sovereign nations. It's about building up a new Cold War that is really all about destabilizing those nations that are already sovereign, right? Because we can't consider a country like Australia sovereign or the UK for that matter when they just do whatever the United States wants to do, right? So uh, they have absolutely, I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous, but this is the speak, right? This is how Democrats speak. This is sort of the more digestible form of imperialism that the United States is trying to promote. And in my opinion, this is a more dangerous form because what did we see, right, in the wake of all of this, right? And I'm not even going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop it. There's all sorts of stuff about how they love, you know, the U.S. loves the Chinese people, but not the government, that kind of, I mean, that's a right-wing argument, but we don't love the Chinese people. We, we love the Chinese people. We don't love the government, right? We, we think that the achievements of the Chinese people are great, but the government is bad, Communist Party bad. Look at all the mass surveillance, perfecting mass surveillance. Not the United States hasn't perfected mass surveillance, but look at all of this. Advancing unlawful maritime claims in the South China Sea, undermining peace and security, freedom of navigation, commerce, breaking trade rules, harming workers and companies in, in the United States, but also around the world. And I want to just show you one last thing before I conclude here, because um, he calls American workers the best in the world we're making and this is a lot of campaign speak too so just remember that anthony blinken here is not speaking really to an audience internationally he's not speaking to china really because china already knows all of this stuff he's not speaking to the world because most of the world knows where the united states stands on china and most of the world whether it's allies that are trying to be corralled into an anti-china posture or whether it is countries that want to remain either neutral or or allied with China, they know this policy. So this isn't a, this isn't for the international audience, even though it's all about the People's Republic of China. This is about 2022 November, 
This is also about 2024, right? The campaign, the, the presidential campaign, should Biden run again. This is all about appealing to people in the United States and appealing to their anti-China sentiment and trying to sanitize that so that it can hit the most far-right elements, which they weren't really satisfied. There was a lot of critiques of this speech because of all the talk about potentials for cooperation and all of that. So uh, oftentimes the Democrats don't satisfy their so-called adversaries, at least rhetorically, uh, but they uh, they generally are satisfied when it comes to the policy. But here, this statement that Blinken says, we're making strategic investments in education and worker training so that American workers, the best in the world, can design, build, and operate the technologies of the future. So this is Anthony Blinken, right, going over Biden's campaign, campaigning, uh, how the Democrats probably in the midterms are going to campaign, right, that Biden will do X, Biden will do Y, the Democrats will do X, they will do Y, they'll invest in infrastructure, they'll compete against China, they'll uh, make sure to take care of the home front first before focusing on, you know, uh, the, the posture abroad, before focusing on how to deal with China abroad. And all of it is just a complete lie. Because the United States has already has already ramped up the new Cold War escalations with China. It's ramping them up and escalating them as we speak. As this speech was happening, right, you had surrounding it, Biden's comments on Taiwan. You had the Asia trip that Biden took. Uh, so after, so during this trip, Biden said in Japan at the end of it that the United States would militarily intervene in Taiwan should China invade, quote unquote. And then you had uh, earlier in the trip, Biden promoting this Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is just this fluffy sort of uh, non-committal agreement to try to create some sort of independent supply chains, supply chain from China. A very weak kind of agreement because the United States won't really offer anything. But nonetheless, this all comes in the wake of this escalation, right? Military, economic, and that's not even to speak of all of the things that Biden has done toward China, right? Increasing the sanctions on Huawei, increasing sanctions on China regarding so-called human rights violations, sanctioning solar companies in Xinjiang, uh, making it so it's hard for cotton workers and others in Xinjiang to make a livelihood. Uh, the militarization of the Asia Pacific continues. You just saw what happened with the Solomon Islands and how the United States and Australia both threatened military intervention based on a security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China. I mean, we can go on and on and on. This is just a little bit of what the Biden administration has done to make the situation worse, even amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You would think that that would wrap up all of the U.S.'s foreign policy, but that's a mistake. The militarism of the United States does not rest anywhere. So there you have it. American workers are the best in the world. Just blatant so chauvinism, blatant nationalism. It really is trying to, as we were talking about, as I was talking about before, racism is a huge part of how the United States promotes imperialism, how it promotes economic, political, and cultural supremacy around the world. It's how it maintains a military footprint and a footprint generally. Racism is a huge component of that. And there you had just a stark example 
put in this kind of a liberal nationalistic speak of, oh, yeah, it's just American workers are the best in the world. Of course, you would say that. No, that is a direct insult to workers all around the world, especially those super exploited workers who are really producing things because most U.S. based workers are super exploited uh, in service industry jobs, gig economy jobs, uh, jobs outside of the formal economy. I mean, we're talking about a, a country that has gutted industry at the behest of finance capital, uh, essentially insulting workers around the world that are producing, that are the key cog in these supply chains, right? They are the ones who are producing all the parts and the pieces and everything that you need to come to for these products to come together, all the commodities to come together and be sold on the market that is what blinken did there right by calling american workers the best it is a blatant form of chauvinism of racism and it's just as bad as donald trump talking about america first this america first that this is soft peddling racism this anthony blinken and joe biden all of the democrats they soft pedal racism to essentially make imperialism even that much more effective. And uh, it should definitely be at the top of our agenda of how we approach politics, that the Democrats are escalating with China and creating this uh, a two-front war on a global stage, this intense war that is about great power competition and... Uh, it's incredibly dangerous and it all in all directions point to the United States uh, really on a suicide course and, and and trying to take all of us down with it. So so I wanted to bring this up because it's Anthony Blinken explicitly telling us exactly where the U.S. stands, exactly how the Democrats are going to campaign and exactly where the military industrial complex finance capital, right, the ruling class, exactly where they're going to go with China. We're not going to see any kind of retreat. There's no, unlike, right, all the theories about Donald Trump okay, wanting to get closer to Russia in order to isolate China. There's none of that among the true foreign policy establishment. The true foreign policy establishment wants to isolate both and eventually overthrow both through this language of containment, right? So both Russia and China are on the chopping block and it's only because neither country, neither Russia or China are in such a vulnerable state. Neither country are in a state where the United States has any capacity to really achieve this goal. It's only because of that that we don't see, I think, an even further escalation of tensions and hostilities from the United States. It's only because these two countries, in their own ways, have built up such protective mechanisms, economically, political, and militarily, which allow them to continue to operate independently in a sovereign manner. So it's something to watch out for, but I wanted to uh, definitely put it on your radar. So thank you so much. Hi, Kibbles. <laughs> Sorry, Lee. I know I've been in this for an hour. Thanks so much for coming again. Uh, I can get to any, I, I think there were some super chats. I don't know if there are any questions with it. No, uh, thanks, Felix, for the super sticker. I don't know what any of these things are, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Thanks so much. I don't know if there are any questions or comments. Please put them in. Thank you to you two, uh, 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 
Lois Socialisti. Um, thanks for that super sticker. You know, uh, if there's any questions or comments, you know, thank you, Voltier. I appreciate it for this super sticker. Um, so, yeah, um, this was, you know, this is just a quick stream. Wanted to get it out here. Uh, please continue to like the stream. Continue to uh, share it. Subscribe to the channel. You know, um, continue to, um, yeah. So uh, uh, hit the notifications bell and please do subscribe on Patreon. Help me meet my monthly goal for um uh, two, uh three more subscribers and then uh, overall 500 for hopefully the year i'm hoping to get that by the end of the year i'm sure that's going to take me to my overall monetary goal so i do have a, i see a question here um lincoln and marks yeah so lincoln uh, i mean marks right congratulated abraham lincoln on his victory um on his election he was big on Lincoln because, well, right? He was the administration that was leading the, um, he, that was leading the anti-slavery right movement, right? He was, I, I mean, Lincoln is controversial in the sense that we can't say he was 100% anti-slavery, but it was the forces that were compelling Abraham Lincoln to take a more firm position on slavery over the years during the Civil War. He definitely changed from uh, the early period to uh, to close to the end, right? When when things started to develop, so Labor Lincoln, just like any other president, was trying to appease all sides, right? His main interest was the Union. His main interest was not to abolish slavery, but nonetheless, Marx understood the significance of what it meant for any political administration to be supporting the side which would accomplish that task, especially since a lot of the Union Army, right, was comprised of freed African slaves or uh, not yet freed African slaves, and their freedom was really contingent upon uh, that victory. And so Marx saw that as a real opportunity to move forward with the tides of progress, right, to move the tides of progress in a direction so that uh, this fetter on development, on economic development, on production itself uh, would be abolished. And that was that was slavery. And so that's so I'll, I can pull up the letter. Right. Um, Karl Marx wrote this letter to Abraham Lincoln in 1864. This is a letter from the International Working Men's Association often referred to as the first international. So sort of like the first international workers movement, you could say communist organization. So you can find a lot of these works at uh, Marxist.org, the Marxist Internet Archive online. I'm not going to read it, but as you see, uh, he's congratulating for his reelection and talking about resistance to uh, slave power and the death to slavery and how... You know, this is the most important, right? When an oligarch of 300 slaveholders dared to inscribe for the first time in the annals of world slavery on the banner of the armed revolt, one of the very spots where 
Hardly a century ago, the idea of a democratic republic had sprung up whence the first declaration of the rights of man was issued and the first impulse given to the European revolution of the 18th century when on those very spots counter-revolution with systemic thoroughness gloried in rescinding the ideas entertained at the time of the formation of the old constitu constitution and maintained slavery to be a, a, a beneficent institution. Indeed, the old solution of the great problem of the relation to of capital to labor and cynically proclaimed property and man the cornerstone of the new edifice. Then the working classes of Europe understood at once, even before the fanatic partisanship of the upper classes for the Confederate gentry had given its dismal warning that the slaveholders' rebellion was to sound the toxin for a general holy crusade of property against labor and that for the men of labor with their hopes for the future even their past conquests were at stake in that tremendous conflict on the other side of the atlantic everywhere they bore patiently the hardships imposed upon them by the cotton crisis opposed enthusiastically the pro-slavery intervention of their betters and from most parts of europe contributed their quota of blood to the good cause so he's talking about so there's just so, I mean, this letter is great. Uh, oftentimes it's used as an example, of, oh, Karl Marx was patriotic with America and all this stuff. But that's uh, that's the decontextualize the situation. This is political strategy. This is obviously about talking to an official and how officials should be spoken to while getting in what I think is some kind of critical Marxist theory, right? And also history. Because if you look at what he's saying, he's and this is true, that Europe was way ahead, that Europe, the working people of Europe and, and, you know, European societies as a whole, they were ahead. They were abolishing slavery. They were moving forward. This is what Gerald Horn talks about even before Marx was writing about it. Uh, this was a trend that was happening. And uh, a lot of people in Europe had understood that uh, their conditions and there was a crisis that was caused by slavery. I mean, it caused an extremely unstable global economy not for the united states but for everyone else and uh, uh, with the united states being the last country uh, to uh, really abolish the trade i mean uh, Karl marx there right was talking to lincoln in a way where you could tell that he was being a representative of that organization to promote a kind of diplomatic uh, solution uh, and pressure on uh, uh you know on this whole issue of slavery because with the end of slavery could come as marx believed uh, an even more favorable situation for working people and he wasn't wrong he wasn't wrong at all because it wasn't for the abolition of slavery if it wasn't for right the end of that institution uh, it is highly unlikely that the labor movement in the united states would have developed as quickly as it did in the next century highly unlikely uh, i mean i'm not even gonna say highly unlikely impossible right so the end of slavery was a really critical piece to the class struggle so in any event i don't have so much time for many more questions i should go soon but i will take a few more um is the u.s losing its grip on latin america at all you know, losing its grip is a strong word. I think that the United States, of course, still has a lot of influence over Latin America. But you see with the Colombia election now, there's a possibility of a left-wing government. You see Lula uh, really leading in the polls, likely to lead to win that election in Brazil. So the Workers' Party 
uh, might have a resurgence. Uh, you see Venezuela stabilizing, even economically, but politically very stable, Nicaragua, right, with uh, the latest election victory. So in Bolivia, overcoming the coup. I mean, I think that there is a move, not necessarily away from the United States per se, because I think even with like Mexico, for example, there is a lot of appetite for some kind of relations with the United States, but not, and you see with the summit of the Americas that the United States is trying to uh, uh, promote, but not in the sense of trying to politically isolate certain countries like Honduras and all, you know, countries with even semi-left or progressive governments. They don't want to be part of this imperialist foreign policy. And I think that is where the United States is losing its grip. It's losing its grip on this idea that Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, that they can just be pushed around, bullied, and that they are, should not be part of an integrated Latin America. I think uh, that's where the United States is losing its grip in trying to prevent that. And I think Latin America will continue on this trajectory for quite some time. So, um, you know, I think there's a few more here. Thanks, uh, Purple Lioness. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, would Marx congratulate Bernie Sanders today? Did Marx congratulate Mexico during the time of Lincoln because blacks ran away to Mexico around that time in order to be free? Oh, good question on the Mexico thing. Uh, I'm not sure. It's almost 100% that he commented uh, on Mexico um, to some respect. But I'm not sure. But in terms of would Marx congratulate Bernie Sanders today? <laughs> You know, hard to say how Marx would have changed his worldview given the political situation and the development of uh, of the world economy of capitalism over time, right? I don't know if we would have, if you know, I don't know if he would have thought same as he did then. Right. Like, I don't know if we could look at Abraham Lincoln in the mid 19th century and Bernie Sanders today as having any kind of similarities, right, in terms of how Karl Marx related, because there was a monumental shift happening in the United States. Although Bernie Sanders is sh the shift toward Bernie Sanders is a significant one politically, I wouldn't call it monumental. It's not leading to any transformative change in the political economy, how it works in the United States, right? It's not a massive reform. Nothing's really changed materially. So in my opinion, I think Bernie Sanders, if I were to guess, Bernie Sanders might be treated, if Karl Marx were alive today, he might be treated like an idealist, right? He might be treated in this Hegelian sense that uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't necessarily understand dialectical materialism he's a perhaps you'd be called a vulgar materialist in the sense that he does talk about maybe be called an economist right because uh, a lot of what lenin talked about with economism kind of fits in the bernie sanders mold it's like yeah you can address the economic situation we're just looking at economics firmly uh, we're looking at change through that lens and socialism is purely right tinkering around with the economic system minor reforms rather than talking about the power of the proletariat how the proletariat will ultimately influence things and ultimately take power i think that that is where Karl marx would take issue and maybe 
have criticism for uh, Bernie Sanders and maybe get into some polemic. I think that would be entertaining. I wish we could uh, we could see that. <laughs> but then again, I don't know in this climate if Karl Marx, just like a lot of these revolutionaries, a lot of these thinkers, I don't know how safe they would be. You know what I'm saying? So um, I don't know if there are any other questions. Thanks so much. Um, well, thanks so much for coming, guys. Oh, Solomon Islands is New Zealand moving in for U.S. I mean, I think New Zealand is is really just like the five eyes and everything. I think New Zealand is really just rife with U.S. influence. So that's all I'll say on that. I, I don't see it as having really, uh, at this point, not really independent foreign policy. I mean, I remember during the Summit for Democracy, I was shocked at seeing, I, well, I wasn't shocked. Seeing the Prime Minister, what is her name? Jacinda Arden, 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 uh, whatever. She just go up there and lambast China as this kind of like, or lambast authoritarian countries, meaning China, as like digital terrorists and how New Zealand was going to come in. I mean, that just sounded like some intelligence BS, right? She sounded like a mouthpiece of the intelligence apparatus of the private security, national security state the MIC. So I was just like, man, we need to stop worshiping these social Democrats because they're going to lead us to World War III. And so, yeah, I see them in the pockets of the United States and especially around Solomon Islands. I don't see them challenging this ridiculously suicidal posture that Australia is taking, right? Uh, there's, there's just a lot. There's just unity among the West. And I think that unity is based not just on economic interests, but white supremacy. So thank you, Nadia. That's exactly what I, what, what I meant in such clear and basic terms. The Anglosphere are all puppet satellite states of the U.S. Indeed, they are. But look, I'm going to go. I got to start making dinner before my wife gets home. Um, you know, for me, this I, I've been battling burnout lately, so... I've been trying to take it a little easy. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be as consistent on here, especially with publishing videos, right? I'll try to, I, I like doing the streams, so I, I'll probably still come on here frequently enough. But I've been battling this for the last, I don't even know, man, probably the last two, three months. And uh, I don't think it's going to get any better. June's, June and July are tough months now. I lost my dad in 2017 in June. Glenn Ford, July of last year. I mean, th these are just months where with COVID, all that stuff happened. I'm still, I'm still like navigating all that. I'm lucky to have more time, more peace of mind, not a lot of, not a lot of outside stressors, but I've been noticing that my work habits around this kind of work is fueling some, some of that, some of that, like, you know, burnout and, constant go, go, go. And, and I think that I'm going to have to make some decisions around where I focus my work. And I, I love writing and I love that kind of work, the op-eds, the analysis. So it's hard for me to give that part up. Uh, that's my roots. That's where, that's where I started. I don't think I'm going to stop that. You know, I have ideas for book projects that I want to collaborate with uh, Carlos Martinez on and other things that we've had in brewing but we've both haven't been in the place to do it so there may be some shifts in my priorities and so with that said though uh, this channel will still be 
quite active. It just might not be as active as it has been lately. Um, it's been discouraging with all the throttling. And then, you know, to add in other platforms, it's just a lot of work, you know, like Rumble, Rockfin. Like I want to, I might join them eventually, but it's just like I'll have the capacity, especially if some of them want it, it work, you know, exclusive for them. It's just like I'm one body, you know what I'm saying? So with that said, uh, please do, you know, continue to like the channel, subscribe to this channel. I mean, like the video, subscribe to the channel, hit notifications bell. Uh, supporting me on Patreon is the best way to sustain my work. You know, I'm still on this goal. I have six months, seven months to go, and I'm about $200 shy. So, you know, uh, keep promoting that and 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 helping me uh, get to that goal. And that will go a long way, at least for the financial side. And then I just got to figure out uh, the work side, right? Um, I've been doing a lot of experimenting over these last year and a half, two years. And I think the now I'm coming to some uh, incipient conclusions, so to speak, about about where I want to place my focus. Now I want to divide my time. So anyway, I appreciate all of you. Thanks so much. Uh, appreciate that, JD. Appreciate that. Is that JD from Boston? If it is, um, what's going on? But it may be a different JD. I know many people have jds anyway on another stream but wanted to say hello hey <laughs> thanks big teal appreciate that um what other stream are you on though <laughs> just kidding this is this was impromptu so i understand if others are elsewhere uh ever everyone's burnt out angel like i think this is a trend i've never seen such like i'm used to being ghosted by people when i reach out to them I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about friends here. I'm actually talking about this media work. I haven't seen, like, I haven't actually been a part of such a moment where I just feel like every outreach I do, every idea I have, it's like, it's hard to just complete it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of, I think a lot of people are here. And so it's hard not to take that personally, but I'm like, must be a lot of people are with me. You know, a lot of people are burnt out right now. So, so, um, uh, Boo Boo Bunny, nice name. Yeah, yeah, no, no apologies here. This is just real. Yeah, you know, I try to keep it real with you all. I'm not. Again, I'm not here for the algorithms. I'm not here for the celebrity. I'm not here for you know, like there's so much of that. I just I'm not here for it, and I think I probably sacrifice a little bit for that because I don't try. It's like I'm not trying to do that. So, you know, there's no apologies needed. This is me. You know, so. So, you know, I just be, I'm just me and I'm just going to continue to to do my work and, you know, try to get some peace of mind and, and, and build up my, myself too. So thanks, Holly Horn. Take it easy yourself. I appreciate it. Uh, Mario, appreciate you coming. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hi, current comment. And yes, Mario, thank you. I appreciate you for following it. Uh, check out Kim Brown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I should. I should definitely um, collaborate with her with Margaret for sure. I've been looking with Margaret to try to get guests, and it's there's a lot of craziness going on, so it's been hard. So we should definitely. Um, so yeah, Big Teal said, "Dang, media work be mean like that." Oh, do I have stories that I do not publicize because I know that you know it's not worth it it's not worth the stress but i 
Um, but I got stories. All I gotta say is that you know, I got I know I got some a lot of inside info. Uh, look, I'm active in the movement. I know people. I just keep it principled, and so I know that's like dangling the tea over the um, the tea bag over the cup or whatever, dangling you know the carrot or you know whatever. But let's just say that we got a lot of problems in this movement, whether it's media organizations, etc., and what comes out what what what's usually in the dark will come out in the light and so you know when that time comes and we're organized and we're waging these polemics a lot of this information is going to come out a lot of it's going to be seen by the people i'm not here to be gossip dude you know so um but yeah no 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 anyway so thank you thank you thank you for coming out hey you sacrifice when you go for money and status that's for sure. Even just what I do, like even just promoting myself feels like a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. It, it's not so much that I shouldn't be doing it because I, a lot of people tell me, Danny, you just, you know, you deserve whatever, X, Y, Z. You deserve to have some support, some stability while you're doing this work. I 100% agree with that. But it doesn't, I think it doesn't negate the fact that you sacrifice time and energy and that time and energy is time and energy taken away from what I really love to do. Uh, I love to be a part of movement work. I love to be a part. I love to engage with people at that capacity, right? To have those real political education moments, experiences, efforts. I love to study, self-study, study with others. Um, there's some things I'm feeling what's just in my mind about turning part of this channel into political education space because I'm not a news reporter. I don't even want to be doing that any like uh, part of the news. It's so nauseating. And it's just like, it's just like constantly looking at a story and then putting my analysis to it. And I'll continue to do that to some degree, but I'm fiddling with the idea of turning this into a study space, given where it's at, you know, um, putting in that hour a couple times a week, with you all, I'm, I'm, I'm flirting with it. I'm thinking about it, right? Although study is very hard to do with books and to read online and all of that. So, and to prepare and all of that, that takes a lot of time. So that's why I'm just flirting with it because I know that it's a huge undertaking and I know that I'm still committed to the columns. So, um, but with that said, uh oh wow that's interesting that's very interesting michael chertoff leave <laughs> the disinformation board thank you a monster indeed um <laughs> would love political education with danny flirt some more yeah no i'm you know it may be something as basic as like you know what i'm reading or picking shorter pieces from my favorite works or you know, I know I want to do something on Glenn Ford's book. I've got to finish that first, um, probably with Margaret and also, um, you know, and also, oh, man, I'm getting late now. I got to get off. <laughs> uh, so, 
Uh, somebody asked Michael Chertoff. He was DHS co-author of the Patriot Act. Um, DHS under George W. Bush. Essentially a monster, as Anna said. So, all right. Everyone, take care. Peace out. Do all the stuff before you go if you haven't done it yet. Like the stream, all of that. Yeah, Dialectic with Danny, I like that. <laughs> Maybe as simple as just uh, me as I'm reading works to, you know, to just bring my thoughts about them. So anyway, like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell, support me on Patreon. You know the deal. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. See you next time. Maybe in a couple of days, actually.